In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. You have indeed found No Proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson. This week on the show, we take a trip to visit the folks at the Emmy-nominated Little Cinema Digital, who grew from art parties in Brooklyn into Hollywood's go-to online interactive premiere party designers. We meet David Hutchinson of GamePath, who are opening Monopoly Life Size, an immersive gaming twist on the classic board game in London. Plus, a chat with Lois Neville of the Hollywood Fringe Festival. We check in with NoPro's arts editor, Laura Hess, Immersive 101, and the pick of the week. But first, headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Proscenium, and here's what's in the Immersive headlines for August 6th. A big reveal by Meow Wolf. Find out what a galactic star cruiser trip really costs. Festivals putting some stakes in the ground for next year and fun facts about Stephen Sondheim. First, an update on some Denver news. The immersive art company Meow Wolf has announced a public opening date of September 17th for its upcoming Denver venue. Convergence Station has reportedly already sold 35,000 tickets. And what is Convergence Station? Well, it is purported to be, quote, QDOT's first multiversal transit station on Earth with service to EMEA, C Street, Ossuary, and Numina. More on that as it develops. Disney has announced pricing and additional details about the forthcoming Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser adventure opening spring of next year. Cabins will start at just over $4,800 for a party of two and just under $6,000 for a party of four for this two-day, two-night LARP-esque adventure. Your stay will include food, drink, lodging, parking, and admission to Hollywood Studios for one day. And of course, we expect pricing to be even higher for times of peak demand. You can listen to NoPro's review crew react to the cost of the excursion. Just go back one episode to the one right before this one. Over in the XR world, Sundance has announced it will be holding a hybrid event in January with activities happening across Utah at satellite venues and online via their custom platform. Similarly, South by Southwest is also planning to hold a hybrid event in March with more details to be announced. In contrast, the Tribeca Film Festival will still take place in June of 2022 instead of its more traditional April dates with a purely in-person IRL format spread across the five boroughs of New York City. And if you have a Sooner Festival hankering, Venice VR Expanded 2021 will include five special events in VRChat and the inclusion of 35 VRChat worlds, in addition to dozens of experiences available from home, as well as on-site and at satellite venues. Almost all of the works may be viewed from home except for one special event, and if last year's lineup is of any indication, expect the majority of them to require PC VR with a couple of Oculus Quest exclusives. And lastly, in a new book by James Lapine about the making of Sunday in the Park with George, the author briefly describes how his collaborator Stephen Sondheim once considered giving up musical theater to create video games. So while much of theater Twitter was busy dunking on this notion, I went down a rabbit hole thanks to tips from two friends, Rich and Brett. It turns out the Broadway composer and lyricist is an immersive creator in his own right, having organized immersive treasure hunts and murder mystery dinner parties for friends in the past. 
Sondheim is also an avid escape room player, says Victor Blake, CEO of Escape the Room. Sondheim once brought Bernadette Peters to an escape room and emails the company now and again with puzzle ideas. It just goes to show that immersive art and entertainment is for everyone. And these have been your immersive headlines. Thanks, Catherine. Catherine will be back when we do Immersive 101 later in the show. But now, our main story. It's six people, well, it's seven. Don't forget their dance. Seven. seven. But the mariachi, there's only six mariachi, so. Yeah, right, but I, I just mean, only? why don't we just get rid of it? It's early June 2021, and we're in Vernon, California, an industrial park of a city just south of downtown Los Angeles, inside a converted warehouse that is crawling with stage techs. We are currently blocking staging for a production for High School the Musical, the Musical, the series. That's Jay Rinsky. He's the founder of Little Cinema Digital. That is happening here tomorrow. A whole bunch of talent and Disney execs are about to come. Andrew Shemedeke, our amazing technical director, is currently blocking and running the troops. Now, Little Cinema got its start as a series of parties bringing movies to life at Brooklyn's House of Yes. The first one was the Jim Henson classic Labyrinth, starring David Bowie. So what are they doing in Vernon? Vernon is the new Hollywood. For that, we have to go back to March of 2020. I know, I know, but like so many stories these days, that's where this one starts. We were six weeks out from launching HBO Max, and that was the events were my responsibility, my whole team's responsibility. Eileen Quast is the former vice president of special events at Warner Media and now runs her own shingle, EQ Collective. We had at least three premieres. We had a kids and family festival. We had an animation festival, and we had our main launch event. And, you know, I was asked by my boss at the time, I had seven days, and he had to come up with a whole new campaign, overall campaign. A week to reinvent how events in Hollywood work. The clock constantly ticking. Where do, what do I do? It's Wednesday. I've got five days to, to come up with a proposal. And I realized I just didn't have the answer. So I really thought about who are those people I know who are just com- who are my friends, first of all, <laughs> who will take my calls, and who are just true innovators and really work on the edge of entertainment and technology. So I think I made about five phone calls, and Jay Rinsky was one of those calls. March of 2020 was kind of intense for Rinsky, too. So <laughs> that was crazy. Uh, right before the pivot, Little Cinema was uh, experiencing probably its biggest year in terms of uh, creative output and, and growth. They were all set to premiere an elaborate audiovisual installation for a film premiere at Austin's South by Southwest. In the years since those first parties at House of Yes, which mingled aerialists, performance artists, and Rinsky's specialty, remixed videos, into participatory art parties, Little Cinema had built a business doing the same for premieres, and they were good at it. They threw a cool party, sure. But depending on the gig, the art could have a bite to it. That edge is why Quast made Jay Rinsky one of her first calls. And I said to Jay, I said, you know, you have always um, produced some of our most special events because you take an immersive, he always looks at everything through an immersive lens. And when the two of us work together, we always have the same goal. Number one is to innovate and number two is to bring whatever these worlds of our, our series or films to life and, and to really immerse our guests in them and, and give them something very special. First up, a trial run of sorts, a premiere party for a TNT series starring David Diggs and Jennifer Connelly. 
no pressure. So Snowpiercer was very much the first event we did out of the gate virtually was a film premiere and we added to it a kind of immersive theater activation because that's what we wanted to do and that was what was most interesting. The event started before showtime with guests receiving a box filled with cocktail mixers, booze, and branded glassware. The swag bag delivered. Then after the screening played out via a custom video player, with all the security features a studio would want to keep gatecrashers out, guests found themselves invited into a series of rooms, themed here as train cars to match Snowpiercer's whole train as metaphor for society thing, each with a different act. The performers set up with access to a Twitch-like chat feed where guests mingled. The most surreal thing about it is that it worked. It felt like a party. Since then, the gigs have gotten more elaborate. Bigger boxes. Murder mysteries. Thousands of guests. So Without Remorse was a big-budget digital premiere. What Little Cinema did is people came, they got to see the whole movie, and then right afterwards, Michael B. Jordan said, and now you're going to do an escape room. Ariel Rubin is one half of the Wild Optimists, who with her partner Juliana Patel has created everything from the escape rooms in a box series that's sold by Mattel to puzzle quests for TV campaigns. So they brought us in to help with the puzzles in the escape room. They built this incredible set. They brought in actors. And our brief, our part of it, was figuring out puzzles that worked within a narrative and a set they already had. Uh, The Wild Optimists had worked at scale before, but never quite like this. This was the first time we designed puzzles for a mass scale audience that would all play them at the same time. It was a really cool thing that Little Cinema was doing. It's actually not something I've seen before. Something you've not seen before has been the refrain for the past year and a half for Little Cinema Digital, and it's gotten them loads of attention. The day before I talked to Rinsky, Adweek named them Experiential Agency of the Year. Yes, that did come as a total surprise. Still somewhat dealing with the surrealism of it all. After all, Rinsky doesn't think of his company as an ad agency. But then again, so many of us have found ourselves in roles we didn't imagine when last March dropped its remix powers on us. Whatever you call Little Cinema Digital, the key thing is that the calls keep coming. And we're starting to see studios now really embrace all these different types of events that can happen. So if you're going to pour so much creative or so, so much heart into something, it's great for a premiere. It's also then great for a fan activation. Which leads us back to that converted warehouse in Vernon and the fan event for High School Musical, the musical, the series. When you create events, you want to eventize them. And there still is something very much in having the golden ticket. It's a simple enough idea, but the internet has this way of flattening everything out. On June 2nd, uh, Disney contacted us for the launch of the Avengers Campus in Disneyland. No biggie, just, you know, a whole theme park land. And that went out on YouTube, that went out on Twitter, that went out on a bunch of different platforms and was broadcast to, you know, effectively millions of people, but they wanted to add a fan component. So we designed a nice little kind of, you know, mission unlocked first 3,000 people on Avengers to RSVP get this exclusive experience. And if there's one thing that anyone who's ever built an activation knows is fans want to feel special. And this ticket doesn't feel like another YouTube event. It's fully branded. It's got a photo booth. It's got a closed off, you know, fan base following in there. They can kind of chat and interact with one another. I was there for that event. And even though there was no escape room or cocktail shipment, the fans were still hyped. 
it's these fan events like this one for High School Musical the Musical the Series that have gotten Little Cinema Digital another kind of recognition, an Emmy nomination. They scored a nod for an activation they made for Blumhouse, which coincidentally is why they have the space in Vernon in the first place. And then just quickly it became a, a huge production house where we build and fabricate all the sets and then we also have a big uh, space to work out of upstairs. So one of the best investments that Little Cinema kind of made on a whim uh, that is paying a really long dividend and we take great pride in our, in our sign out here. Little Cinema aims to get back into the physical activation game once it all makes sense again. But even as that part of the future remains hazy, there's a lot for the art collective turned experiential agency to celebrate. If you want to hear more of our conversation with Eileen Quast about what makes premiere parties tick, or catch our chat with Jay Rinsky, keep an eye on the backer-only podcast feed in the coming week. That's where our Patreon backers get the bonus goods, including our growing video library. Check it out at patreon.com slash no proscenium. Once again, we've reached that part of the show we like to call Immersive 101, where we tackle one of the fundamental tenets of our immersive world. With me, as always, is our executive editor, Catherine Yu. Hello, it Catherine. It is true. I am literally always with you, figuratively, mentally. <laughs> uh, Slack says this is true. Now, normally in this part of the show, I kind of slip into a, mm, let's say, naive version of myself. <laughs> A character that came out of nowhere, but this one we're a little bit. Uh, we've got a little bit of thornier, so you're gonna get the you're gonna get the real Noah for this section. Uh, Catherine, what, what's what's on the agenda for us this week? So this is something that comes up a lot, and I think potentially confuses people. Um, what's the difference between something that's interactive, something that's participatory, and something that's immersive? Oof! Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- this one's got a lot of dimensions to it. So what's your what's your take on it? And then they may all weigh in. So uh, sometimes we will see experiences that are participatory in that the entire audience in aggregate is perhaps choosing an outcome or they're voting or there's a poll. So there's that level of Twitch, right? Yeah, exactly. Or a game show. You might vote for your favorite character or who you think is going to win. So that's the audience kind of participating at a bigger scale in aggregate. Uh, There are other experiences that are interactive, so you might find something that feels a bit more video game-like where you're doing stuff and the experience is responding in kind, but that doesn't necessarily make it immersive. So if we go back to our original definition of immersive, we're thinking about things that the audience is on the same level as the show performers and environment As a corollary to that, I'm sure you've probably played some kind of game where you're fiddling and there's knobs and there's buttons and it doesn't feel like anything's actually happening. So 
we have to make sure that we recall that distinction between, you know, it feeling like it's actually responding to you and it being interactive just so you can push some buttons. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned, you know, immersive doesn't have to do this stuff, right? It doesn't have to, but a lot of times you find that these are, uh, they, they coincide, right? So there's a pretty big Venn diagram of experiences that are interactive and experiences that are immersive, but they're not one-to-one. So you can't always assume you're going to find one if you see the other. And, and you mentioned something like a, a game show, right? So like, why, why doesn't no pro cover like trivia nights or like, you know, game shows on on television or, or in person? So again, it kind of goes back to what we think of as being core to the idea of immersive, the participant being in the world or in the space with the narrative or performers kind of being on that same level, you can't really get that if you're watching, for example, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Gotcha. Gotcha. You, you, you might be the person that gets called to be a friend or, or if you're sitting in the audience, maybe you're you know yelling at the person what to do, but you aren't really playing the same game that they are. Exactly. All right. Hopefully that cleared it up for people. Uh, I know I know we can get fairly esoteric, and and we're hoping that this after a, a month of these that we're we're demystifying. Uh, so we'll we'll see what everyone's thinking of this segment. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show for for this part of the show and uh, for whatever other parts of the show we're in this week <laughs> since we're recording this a month ahead of time. So. All right, thanks, Noah. Still to come on the show, Monopoly Life Size in London, the Hollywood Fringe Festival, we check in with Laura Hess, No Pro's arts editor, and the pick of the week. Hey, do you like the show? Then please let everyone know. We need to grow the audience, and the only way we do that is through word of mouth. You don't need to blast it all over the place. Just tell a friend. If everyone told a friend, uh, we'd, we'd double our listenership. That's, that's how math works. It's great. So please tell somebody. Uh, we do a lot of work and uh, we, we'd like more people to hear, please. Thank you. We've now reached that part of the show where we check in with our friends from around the Immersiverse and sometimes right here at home. This week, it's going to be right here at home. We have the arts editor for No Persinium. That would be Laura Hess. Laura, how are you? I'm great. <laughs> um, you've been you've been bouncing around the uh, the immersive art universe uh, a lot lately. Share with us uh, some of your adventures, if you will. Yeah, it's such an exciting time. I was lucky enough to be able to go to Las Vegas and explore the new Area 15 experiential playground and Mm -hmm. dove into Meow Wolf's Omega Mart, also explored Museum Fiasco's current art installation called Cluster by Playmode Studio. I went into Wink World, which is an exhibit created by Chris Wink, one of the three co-founders of Blue Man Group. And I also did the the zip line at Area 15, and capped all of that off with a drink under Color and Light's beautiful Oddwood tree, an LED programmable LED tree. 
that sits in the center of a beautiful bar in the heart of Area 15. So got to, so it, I mean, it's amazing how much you cannot pack into a full day of Area 15 in the sense that I, I, there was so much more that I could have done, even though it was a very thorough day. So that was a big part of it. Um, Does it hang together for you? Because like you're an arts editor and like Area 15's got this kind of like pop art burning man for the masses vibe. Like, does it, is it, is it working for you? It's working for me. I think that there is, I think this is going to, we're going to see more of a trend of either these experiential playgrounds that are all housed under one roof. And I also think we're going to see more standalone experiences. I've talked recently about Chromasonic Satellite One. There's other experiences, certainly in Vegas, in the Louis Vuitton store, there's a beautiful James Terrell installation. Oh, so I think that- What? There's a Terrell inside the Louis Vuitton in yes, Vegas? Yes, so it's okay. a, it's okay. <laughs> deep breath. Okay, sure, breaths. sure. No, I'm going to keep breathing shallowly. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of his beautiful Gansfeld installations. And so I do think that more and more we're going to see these pop up standalone, immersive, or interactive art experiences. And concurrently, I do think we'll see more of these experiential playgrounds. I think it's a great opportunity. Area 15 is so huge. And there's a great opportunity to rotate programming either within the tenants themselves. Things like uh, Omega Mart is clearly an anchor tenant that's not going anywhere. And there's tenants like Museum Fiasco that will have rotating programming for themselves. And then I think there's also options in terms of other tenants in the space and how that continues to rotate and evolve. And I think this is a great way for so many people, some that are completely new to experiential, some that are very well versed in experiential, to go and explore all kinds of different works, all kinds of different creators and experiences, and to really get a taste of new and different things. So I think we will wind up, I certainly hope that we will wind up seeing more models like Area 15. Is this also kind of like a turning point? So there's that, there's that playground model, mm-hmm. but there's also, you know, there's, there's the traditional art world and there's even like, you know, the festival world that's looking at experiential and installation as, as, you know, I don't know, like a growth vector for them like how how is this how is that dialogue going because i know you've also been to like you know you've been to stuff that kept ucla put on mm-hmm. you know you just hit up the la art show how's how is this playing out as a trend well so i think you had a really interesting conversation i think it was last week with michaela ternaski holland about tribeca and she made a great point around how Tribeca was really looking to use New York as a backdrop, looking to integrate the New York environment, the people, the communities in really active and resonant ways. And I think that especially film festivals have been, during the pandemic, have been utilizing and incorporating these hybrid models very, very well. And of course, there's growing pains, there's things that uh, you know, maybe didn't work as effectively as intended or as uh, you know, and originally conceived. But I think overall, there's been so much great work in terms of these hybrid models, also the accessibility, opening this up so it's not such an exclusive ticket. Um, and I, I don't know that the art world is following suit or is following suit yet 
at the same pace. So with mm-hmm. the LA Art Show, there were some online talks by artists, curators, institutions. There was a virtual tour that you could take, although there were some technological hiccups with that. But there really wasn't a hybrid presentation either remotely and then in person. I felt like it's still chasing or maybe not chasing is the right word. I, I, I want it to be chasing some of the experiential models more. I think that the the art fair model has become really rather stagnant. And I think it needs to innovate. It needs to be reimagined and it needs to evolve. It needs to be more interactive and experiential, whether that's in-person and or remote digital options. From a, a full outside remove, it feels like the art world in particular is having, I don't want to say say an identity crisis, but it does feel like it's at a crossroads because there's the the full-on explosion that happened in NFT at the beginning of the year mm-hmm. that's sort of, that hype cycle settled down, but NFTs aren't going anywhere. And like maybe they've even stabilized into something that isn't pure hype now. I'm not so I, I'm not so certain. There's some people I know who know a lot more about that world, and we'll we'll get them on the show at some point. <laughs> but um, but but at least there is some work being done in those spaces that are kind of really gorgeous. Like I'm thinking of like the work that say Sutu's doing, but Sutu's also working in AR on projects like Brianna's Garden, which is at Tribeca, but is also like cranking out these like really crazy hand drawn neons, um, and. I don't know. Like, I feel like there's all these different ra- ways they could go, um, but maybe, maybe sometimes the the devil's in the detail. So, were there some pieces at the LA Art Show uh, that you found particularly compelling this time out? There were there were two that I'd like to cite. Uh, so these were both part of Diverse Art LA, which is a separate section. Uh, it's curated separately from the overall show, and. This year, uh, Diverse Art LA focused on women and non-binary artists that are working at the intersection of art, science, and technology. And there were two artists. One is um, Mexican artist Carmen Argote. Uh, She's based in LA. She had a 12-minute short film, and uh, it's called Last Light. And this is described as a meditation on memory and walking in LA. This is not an interactive piece, but it... I want to spotlight it because I do think that we are, as we transition, we're still very much in the pandemic, but I also think that mentally and emotionally, a lot of people are just needing and and wanting to be done. They want to move on, at least in terms of the experiences, the entertainment that they're seeking. And I think that is completely valid, but I also want to highlight that especially because we're still in the pandemic, we have not really had a chance to process what we've all been through. We're still mm-hmm. in it. And her, this work last light does a beautiful job. So it's um, this 12 minute short film with voiceover. And it's this gorgeous meditation that I think really facilitates a, a sense of processing. It's very poetic. It's very emotionally resonant. And it reminded me that it's not, it doesn't behoove us to sort of try to box up our, our feelings around the pandemic or to, to try to shelve those and sort of 
uh, with the mindset of like, oh, I'll deal with that later, that we do need art that is referencing the pandemic and everything that we've been through, maybe not so directly, maybe a little bit more indirectly, a little bit more allegorically, but I think it's absolutely necessary. And I think we're so ready to move past this. I think that so many people don't realize maybe how much we need this type of art. And the other piece that I do want to highlight is by an artist named Ana Marcos, a multidisciplinary Spanish artist who specializes in electronic and digital art. And this was an interactive experience. It was powered by AI and it's, um, it's AI capturing through observation uh, various facial expressions, body expressions, biometric measurements, and then it is able to deduce even emotions from or potentially deduce emotions from facial expressions. And so this really questions identity and how data is mined and viewed uh, and used with or without our consent. So this mm. involved two separate rooms and there was sort of an observation room and this kind of how like, uh, you know, 2001, how like AI that would, when I, when I stepped away from the immediate observation line, which is a, across from a, a specialized mirror that captures your movements, the, uh, I was alone in the room at that point, And because I was no longer on this mark, the AI started talking out loud and asking if anyone was there, did anyone want to engage with it? So it also felt like there was a very thoughtful presentation of flipping that switch because I was also observing it, but I'd stepped outside of the parameters for it to be able to observe me. And so there was an interesting kind of conversation, although sort of, um, you know, behind a double-sided mirror type of conversation between me and this AI. And then in a separate room, it projected the recording of its observation of me and the various emotions and biometrics that it had evaluated and deduced. So these were two standout experiences. And I really wish that the LA Art Show would incorporate more of this type of work alongside. I'm not saying the fair should completely pivot, but I think we need more of this dynamic, interactive work in conjunction with the more traditional presentation of booths that have maybe more static works. All right. Well, you know, I'm always in for the weird interactive installation he like that's why this whole show exists so i'll agree with you i'm sure there's plenty of people just like i want my paintings without you weirdos around here or i want my <laughs> nfts but uh but not us we got a point of view so laura thank you thank you so much for for jumping on the show this week and uh and opening up uh, the art world for us oh it's absolutely my pleasure thank you so much Joining us now is David Hutchinson, the CEO of GamePath and producer of Monopoly Life-Sized. David, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. All the way out in London right now. So this is a transatlantic call, as we used to call them. Good to, good to speak to you here from rainy London. You wouldn't know it's July. 
you know, honestly, uh, LA, I, I don't want to, I don't want to brag about how mild of a July we're having. Cause if I do, I'm going to get hit with a heat wave. Uh, <laughs> and then I have to feel bad for my friends in the Pacific Northwest. Let's start off with an easy one. I, I mentioned the name of a project, which is the one you're working on right now about to launch Monopoly Life-Sized. What is Monopoly Life-Sized? So Monopoly Life-Sized is a gigantic version of the one of the most well-loved board games across the world um, where groups of participants go onto the board and they play the game, they roll the dice and they move around the board with a playing piece that is um, is covered off by an actor and they go into all the different properties and, and go around the board as you would um, if you were playing the board game. But the slight difference is we have added in a escape the room sort of small challenge and puzzle element. So in every single space on the Monopoly board, there is a little room. And in that room, the sort of added theatrical element that we've added for our uh, Monopoly life size is you have to overcome a challenge, whether it be logic, physical, uh, or something that's going to test you for two and a half minutes um, that is related to the property you're trying to buy. And that's the sort of the added bit that participants will uh, will be doing in, in teams. You're playing across the board um, against uh, three other teams uh, of groups of six. And it's got every bit, everything from Pasco to going to jail and having to get out of jail, uh, buying properties and building houses and, and hotels. And for us here in London, it's based on the, the UK version. So some of the most iconic streets in London that are, are well known and and, uh, and all of those are on the on the board for, uh, for the Mopid Life Size experience. Are any of these challenges dealing with a bank loan officer in order to buy the property by any chance? <laughs> there is, there is some, yeah, there's some real challenges. I mean, I'm, I, I, <laughs> keep going. No, I love it. <laughs> I, I, I crack a joke and you're ready to go. Let's do it. Yeah, no, I love it. It's, um, but what I will say is that the more expensive the property, the more challenging the, uh, the activity. And we've, what we've tried to do is we've also tried to give each of the, you know, each of the games a bit of a modern twist. Cause with something like London, you know, there's, there's, there's the historic, um, nature of some of these iconic streets, but they've really changed in the last, you know, 70 years since Monopoly became a thing. So yeah. we've merged some of the historic, um, you know, iconography of these streets and, and areas of London with some of the more modern um, and trendy uh, aspects of the city. So it is really a, a whirlwind tour of London whilst you're also trying to buy all the property and make sure you come at the game with the most most assets. Oh my goodness. I, I may... I... If we do over time, I may ask you for some very nerdy questions. And all right, so this is this is what you're making right now, uh, launching in August. Uh, what, how long is the run going to be, by the way? So it is uh, an endless run at the moment. So we're um, we're opening on the 14th of August, and we're currently selling until beginning of 2022. Um, we very much see this as a, a as an attraction. You know, it's um, it's in many ways sort of alongside some of the other sort of uh, staple attractions in London, like the sort of London Dungeons and such. And it, you know, what we've done is we've come in and taken a previously previous retail site um on Tottenham court road uh, which used to be a, a stationary shop called paper chase and repurposed the 30 odd thousand square foot into this leisure-based um activity based on the you know one of the most famous boards in the world but there's also f&b so there's a, a bar and a restaurant monopoly themed and there's a shop there as well which has lots of different uh, monopoly and other hasbro content in there for uh, for for participants to buy so it's a real experience you're going in there and you can you know have some some monopoly themed cocktails or go and have a dinner and then go and play the game buy some merch and um, you know it's, it's what i think a lot of high streets in the uk and probably in, in other places in the world 
world are going to have to start thinking very differently on how they use the square footage. You know, COVID has changed a lot and, and has meant that retail yeah. is moving online. And it's for us in the leisure and, and theatre space to come in and make these streets destinations again. So that's the game. That's the vision. Uh, tell us about you. Who are GamePath? How did you wind up on this uh, well, well path? Yeah, so I mean, my background for the last 11 years has been in theatre. So um, we produced lots of work under my old company, Cellador Worldwide, which is still producing excellent theatre all over the world. And we did musicals, plays. But, you know, what I noticed, and I think what a lot of other people have noticed and companies have been doing it for a lot longer than we have, is that the way that audiences want to they want to engage with live arts and entertainment is changing. And certainly some of our younger demographics want to have more impact on their night, you know, and where perhaps a, a two and a half hour traditional musical would have been, you know, the, the main demand in a city like London. I do think things are changing. And I think that, you know, with some of these amazing companies like Punch Drunk and Secret Cinema are starting to test the barriers between, you know, how much of a experience is narrative led and you can impact it with how much the participant and their group of friends can really change the direction of their night and how they, how they consume it. So that was interesting. But what we felt was a space the market which wasn't really being targeted was that you know a huge sector like the gaming sector hasn't necessarily been the focus of any company in that space so where a lot of them were sort of film to immersive experience titles or or whatever we felt there was a huge number of of ip and 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 games that could have a big experiential led um uh, attraction in in london and other cities And, and we could sort of reimagine some of these iconic games um in a way that w- was was really fun because everyone knows what it is but nobody's ever played it in real life and i think you know that's that's where uh, you know the connection with hasbro and their imagination and, and 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 willingness to really expand what the brand is and how it you know how it interacts with them with the widest possible audience has been a real joy to to, to explore over the last few years well let's let's walk through that door uh, then because there are few names bigger in toys and games than hasbro which my, my bank account, unfortunately, can attest to. Uh, and so I got very excited when I saw this and another live action project they've got going here in California. Who approached who here? So actually, Hasbro, um, to their credit, uh, you know, approached us and said that they felt oh. that there was a lot of IP that they, that they, they owned and, and controlled, and they wanted to understand how that could find a life in the sort of live entertainment sector. Now, where perhaps that was a conversation happening with the theatre company originally, I, you know, me and my team very, very quickly honed in on this exciting space and, 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 and focusing much more on the gaming element and the participationary element. Um, and so, you know, through a, a good number of coffees and Zooms over to, to colleagues in the US, we really found a common ground in trying to, um, in, you know, be on, be truthful to what makes these brands so iconic. I mean, there's there's so many parts of a board like Monopoly, from everything yeah. from the Scotty Dog to the properties to the, you know, Pasco and and Clay 200, and there's you know there's a whole language that is Monopoly and 70 years worth of Monopoly that we can access. But we've got to add value to it. We can't, you know, we, we there's no point in doing something that isn't bringing it to a new generation and new audience. And that's what Hasbro, you know, that's the absolute fundamentals that Hasbro have exemplified over the decades. They've reinvented the game and 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 and, and continue to find new ways of playing it. You know, everything from Monopoly Deal to Monopoly Go to Monopoly, you know, um, Star Wars Monopoly. They, they've continuously reinvented it, which is what makes it so prevalent. So we really found common ground there, and actually you know whilst it's monopoly life-sized and we're all in on that and it's our huge experience that we're doing in 2021 
we do have a joint venture across some of the other, the other titles um, to explore how we might then, you know, look at some of the other game and, and, and how they might expand into this live experience space. Putting together work at this scale is is tricky under any circumstances, you know, 30,000 square feet, you know, figuring out the, the F&B, the egress, the ingress, transforming a space, you know, all the different puzzles that set up. And then we've we've got this pandemic going on at the same time. So has has that altered any of your plans? Has it put a curveball in what you've been doing? It, it, it's certainly it's certainly um, been been a challenging environment to 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 make and create. You know where you have so much of our sector, and I sort of talk about the wider sort of entertainment, arts, uh, leisure sector that have been in turmoil for the last twelve to fourteen months. And you know I, I don't know how the U.S. government have dealt with it, but in, in the U.K. there's been an element of support, but unfortunately, a lot of freelance practitioners were were completely missed out. And um, you know, I think a big, dedic- you know, a big driving force for us was to keep the amazing creators we're working on in this, in um, in work, and to to ensure that as soon as it was safe and and we were able to do so, we had an incredible experience to bring to the London market. And I suppose sort of flipping that into the the, the opportunities that that COVID created. I mean, for one it's very unlikely we would have been able to take a site as iconic as, you know, this big building on, on Tottenham Court Road um, and certainly be able to to repurpose it in the, w- the way that we are without something like COVID really sh- completely shifting the dynamics as to how high streets are, are, are working in, and unfortunately where some of the other retail businesses have had to move online and, 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 and have less of a presence. Um, but I also think one of the most important things that's going to come after COVID is that people are wanting to be together again. You know, we're coming out of isolation and we want to be, ex- you know, experiencing and being the company of friends and family who we've spent the last 14 months apart from. And I think, again, that's where it really plays into this experiential space where we have, you know, people wanting to interact with each other and, you know, share an experience and a memory because it's unfortunately been a good year or so of virtual memories only and and digital digital zoom calls and whatever else so you know i i would like to think that the timing is 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 good it has it has put a lot of pressure on us we also um as a wider company run theater buildings and and, and have had a lot of projects in the theater space paused and, and 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 disrupted and that has had a big impact but i think there's something that's really exciting about artists and people in the entertainment sector is we've all fought so hard to do what we do it's not the easiest industry to get into and you've got to really you know dedicate yourself to it and and build you know build contacts and 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 your company and i think that's what's also been quite reinvigorating is just how everyone is fighting very hard to come back strong and ensure that the arts and and the entertainment sector are are stronger than ever looking ahead this will be where we wrap for for this part but i think i am going to ask you to to stick around for some overtime um if, if you got the time this is the start of a new path for for your team what's the next move on the board for you so I think for us, um, you know, we're learning so so much uh, by doing an experience like this, working with a huge brand like Hasbro and and all the amazing team over in the US and the UK, um, and, and you know, absolutely got an eye on how do we how do we not just look at you know other experiences and titles in the in the sort of gaming experience space, but we also believe that Monopoly life size can can travel and can move into lots of different territories. 
um, because there is so many different versions of Monopoly. You know, you've got uh, versions of it in almost every single country in many, many different languages. Um, so we'd like to, to to really explore how the how this can 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 move and 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 actually find different uh, locations across the world. But but certainly the, the relationship with Hasbro and, and and some of the other board games we're exploring is exciting. And and you know, to be honest, these things take three to four years to develop. If, if you want to really spend the time correctly on developing them and and testing them and and making sure that they're something that uh, are you know quite exciting experiences, but we're also having some interesting conversations with some of the uh, um, TV studios that have sort of gaming led film brands and other things that that could be really interesting. So I think the idea is you know Monopoly life sized. We're all in on it. We're really excited about it. We can't wait for audiences to come in to experience it mid August, but we do feel like the world could be quite excited about this and actually London whilst it's the flagship is just one city and we'd love to bring this to a much wider audience all right David this is this is very very exciting uh do you have a few minutes to stick around absolutely all right we're gonna nerd out so uh folks check the check the rest of the feed for us uh getting nerdy I'm gonna start with a very dorky question in a second uh but uh until then David thank you for for jumping on the podcast today thank you for having me Hi, this is Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor for No Presidium. I'm here to introduce this week's Pick of the Week. Every week, our review crew meets in the Discord and in this podcast feed to talk about the shows that we've seen. It's a part of the reviews rundown on the site and where we select the Pick of the Week. This week with the pick we have... This is Patrick McLean, the Chicago Curator with No Presidium. And Patrick, what's the Pick of the Week this week? The pick I have for everyone this week is Rafe the Oblivion afterlife a horror vr game from fast travel games in rafe you play as ed who is a photographer who's recently down on his luck his relationship with his partner is on the rocks his photography business at large is not going well so he decides hey why not go uh take some photos of a seance in a sunset boulevard-esque hollywood mansion and see what happens and get paid. Unfortunately for poor Ed, he is killed in the proceedings of the situation, but he's not dead. He actually comes back as a wraith, a essentially a ghost who is caught between the living and the dead and has to piece together what happened, who killed him, what happened to the other guests, why is there a horrific monster hunting and prowling the hallways of this Hollywood mansion? And only through wits and stealth is he going to be able to make it through and piece together the mystery he finds himself in. So what makes this the pick of the week? While this is a little bit more of a video game compared to some of the other VR experiences we talk about on No Proscenium, what I think Rafe does really well comes down to three elements it has really great sound design when you're walking the hallways and looking for clues you hear a door creak behind you you hear uh, a howl of someone in pain coming from the next room if you lean in and listen to the wall and it really creates this awesome atmosphere of tension 
definitely play this with headphones because the direction of where sound is coming from is really amazing and engaging. And from that, very early on in the game, you know you are being hunted. There are horrific creatures in certain parts of the house who are walking around that you need to avoid. So there's constant tension building in seeing a shadow looking out over the garden and seeing someone shamble through a maze of hedges and through buildings. There's knowing that terror is around every corner and it is just great pacing in the story that accomplishes that, which finally leads to, to some really amazing set pieces. And what I mean by that is that, you know, while the hallways of this mansion can be very bland and typical, you open doors and you go into some stunningly rendered and beautifully designed spaces, uh, a, a, a private movie theater where the projector conveniently is flickering, a beautiful party room where a gorgeous but dead tree has grown out of the floor, a sunroom that is full of just clearly a violent, horrific action has occurred. It is so well built to those moments. And then when that twist occurs that you're about to be hunted, it really pays off and you feel that tension and you can hear your heart beating through your own chest. Thanks, Patrick. And can you let us know where people can play this experience? It's currently available on both Steam and Oculus and costs $30. Awesome. And I think we can stay tuned for Patrick's view coming soon to No Presidium. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Each year, the Hollywood Fringe Festival galvanizes the Los Angeles theater scene uh, and always has a big impact on the immersive theater scene here in L.A. Uh, of course, uh the uh, year still being what the year is, Fringe is going to look a little different this year. And we have Lois Neville, Operations Director for the Hollywood Fringe Festival, uh, joining us to talk about what's up with Fringe this year. Lois, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Noah. I'm thrilled to be here. Lois, uh, before we dive into it, just uh, you, you've been with Fringe a couple of years here. What's, what's your background with the festival? Yeah, I've been with the Fringe for 10 years now, which is crazy that I'm 10 years older than when I started but I started out as a volunteer. I just loved the community and I wanted more. So I continued to ask for more every year. Uh, volunteered, I've worn three different hats, um, so three different positions and new to last year, uh, operations director now. For those, particularly those of our listeners who are outside the LA area, what in a normal year, one day we might have something akin to a normal year again, what does the Hollywood Fringe Festival look like? What, what are we talking about here? Yeah, I love that. The normal year. Someday I hope to not have to use that anymore. Um, but normally it's a it's a giant celebration of theater and community is the best way I can describe it. Normally we have 400 shows doing over 2000 performances in a in a small area of Hollywood for almost an entire month. And it really is just that it's community coming together, a community that is normally more dispersed because there's theater in Los Angeles, but it's all over the place in this in this large city. And so it's a month where theater artists can come together and really share in their love of theater. And that that's what we do. We celebrate theater. The 
relationship between the fringe and the immersive theater scene in LA has really, in some ways they've kind of like come up together in the past five years. I know, I think it was the immersive heads who were the first ones to crash the fringe site on the first day the tickets uh, went on sale. So we were very proud of that. We, we may have given uh, Ben Hill a, a heart attack at one point. Um, but could, could you talk to our audience a little bit about sort of that relationship, uh, how the fringe sort of sees uh, the, the immersive crowd? Absolutely. I, I'm personally just in awe of immersive theater. I'm someone who's always been a little bit scared of it but in the best way, because it's such an experience. And I love that theater can put those feelings, you know, in me and and to be scared is such an exciting thing with theater. I think something that's really interesting to me is the immersive scene created the category. There wasn't always an immersive category within the festival, but y'all brought it. You brought so many amazing shows and experiences that we had to honor that. So I would argue you brought it to the festival and we just, opened up our arms, you know? And it's, it was so nice to find a welcoming home for, for the, the scrappy artists. I mean, for those who haven't had the pleasure of going to fringe, like the, the platform it gives DIY folks or folks who are taking that step above DIY is just amazing. And in, in, I think in some ways, like Lois is like, even like undersold it. If memory serves, it's the largest fringe festival West of the Mississippi. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's it's definitely one of the largest in the country and arguably getting to know especially fringe festivals more. We're we're on the uh the, the top end of that list. Yeah, yeah. Uh and I think that's something that really has over the course of, of the, the decade plus, you know, surprised and shocked Los Angeles and, and traditional Los Angeles theater. And just by sheer force of will, this thing has emerged and and become uh, become the center center of the year for so many people. Your point about community, I think, is really really important. And I think a lot of a lot, not just on the level that like some of the people who are key to Fringe themselves are key to the immersive community. I'm thinking of folks like Monica Miklas uh, or Lauren Ludwig. You know, but that there's there's a esprit de corps in Fringe that I think that we've tried to carry over into immersive in LA and because of LA's impact on immersive in immersive beyond. So um, thank, thank you. And thank the fringe team for, for sort of setting that frame for us. Our absolute pleasure. Like it's such a joy to see the creativity in immersive theater. I mean, I've seen Shakespeare in vans. I've gone to someone's apartment to see a show. Like it's incredible to me that, Art can be created anywhere, and immersive artists prove that. Now, this is not a traditional year, so uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about producing a festival in the time of COVID. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll end on a happy note for everyone who's like, no, not this. Are we done already? Skip. No, no. We'll, we'll come back to the fun stuff, and we'll talk about specific shows. But um, I know – I mean, I live in L.A., uh, it's been back and forth. I've had to watch you guys pivot like four times like in the past two weeks, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, And I mean, from the very beginning, when we, I mean, we canceled our 2020 festival. And even at that time, I mean, I know we actually postponed first because we're like, okay, this is a new thing. Everything's probably going to be okay by June. Ha ha. Not so much. So we postponed, we canceled, and then we postponed 2021. And by sheer force, luck, and I don't know what, like, here we are just a few days away from open. And it's, it's honestly because of our community. We 
are a festival that is a platform for artists. So we're a support model and it's the artists who were willing to go along for the ride. They, they knew that it wasn't going to be easy. They knew that we would have to pivot constantly. I mean, between LA County and just our own like safety practices, they said yes. And that's how we're able to do this. And yes, in the last couple of weeks, especially, you know, I, it was directly after we released our safety plans that LA County dropped the mask mandate. So that was a fun day for us. Um, but we've, I mean, honestly learned from immersive artists. You plan what you can, you prepare all situations, but then at the end of the day, you roll with the punches. And that's what we've been doing. We've just taken the punches and planned and thought through, you know, our plans the best we could. It's been really heartening to see you guys adapt and evolve and swerve and the artists in the community adapt and evolve and swerve. Um, there's, there's a resilience here that can be really exhausting to have to practice, uh, for certain. I think, I think we, we, we need, all of us need to acknowledge that, that like this stuff is not easy, but it also is inspiring, uh, to see the, the drive to create and the drive to have community overcome those obstacles and adapt as needed. Well, you know, it's so important, like, and this is something the staff has talked a lot about. It's, you know, of course, like we, we take the safety of our community seriously. That is the, the first thing on our brains every day as we wake up and come up with a new plan. But we are also very aware that the longer we hold off and that the artist community holds off, we're buying into the absurd notion that art is not essential. So it's finding that balance between both of those risks to make yeah. something happen. Yeah. No, and it's a, I think it's a pressure we hear we feel here all the time and throughout the throughout the immersive community. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll we'll table some of that for now because Maker knows it's it's all we've all been talking about. Uh, for those for those who are maybe on the fan side, uh, what what's some work that they can look forward to seeing? Like, uh, I, I guess this year the fringe is going to be a bit hybrid, so some stuffs online, some stuffs in person, right? Yeah, which is one of the exciting things about having to pivot is we, we have new opportunity. So we are a, a real hybrid festival where we have live stream and live stream like in the moment, not digital you know recordings that people can watch whenever. So live in the moment theater and then also in person. And a lot of shows are doing both at the same time, which is super exciting to be able to open up the audience for those shows. All right. I know you guys can't play favorites. But is there anything for the immersive heads uh, that they should maybe be like dialing up and, and taking a look at? Or are there are there pieces that are popping up in that section? It's I feel it's a little smaller than most years, but is is there some promising stuff in there? Absolutely, and it's 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 a smaller section this year, but I think all of the immersive experiences are going to be super strong. And the cool thing with that is this year we have both in person immersive shows and digital immersive shows, which is going to be really exciting to see how the digital element uh, comes to play with immersive theater this year. I know something that I can I can speak to since I can play favorites. Uh, there's there's at least one piece, uh, The Sleepover, which we've uh, talked about before on, on the podcast in general. Uh, I don't know if we've actually, do we have them? I can't remember if we had Jansen on. But that piece is, is particularly interesting because it started as a physical piece it was going to be in Fringe last year as a physical piece. When that couldn't happen, they pivoted to digital. 
And now it's going to be in Fringe this year in the digital version of the show. Yes. And it, the, the cool thing is, is I remember like early in 2020, we, we started having, we've, we've, you know, upped our event timeline every year just to create more opportunity. So we were having events in early 2020 preparing for that festival. And I met Jansen at one of the first ones. And I remember distinctly hearing about this awesome sounding show. And it, like, like you said, pivoted from like what it was going to be in 2020 to what it is now. And the cool thing about that is to be able to take like the same concept and just change the rules, you know? And the crazy thing is, is like, I've seen both the physical version and the digital version and it, it works like the spirit is there. So, um, so that's one for everyone to check out. Uh, Lois, remind everyone the, the dates for this year's Hollywood Fringe. Absolutely. So we are going live August 12th through the 29th, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, all of that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and if folks, uh, folks want to, uh, find more information or buy some tickets and search for shows to see, where do they go? Yes, please do. Hollywoodfringe.org has all of that. And in fact, I'm going to give you a little scoop, Noah. We are going to be releasing our iPhone app very soon. So keep an eye out for that as well. There'll be more ways to purchase and experience theater than, uh, we've ever had before. All right, a, f- a full iPhone app. Oh, Mr. Hill's been busy, I imagine. All right. <laughs> Lois, thank you so much for uh, jumping into the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. We have reached the end of another episode of No Persinium. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Uh, you'll notice uh, we didn't call out any new Patreon backers this week because we didn't get any. So uh, maybe that's going to be you. Patreon.com slash No Persinium. I don't joke when I say it's our only income source. So please, uh, if you like what we do and you've got even just $2, uh, please come on down, unlock the bonus features that we have, unlock the bonus podcast feed, unlock the video archive that we're going to keep on growing and help us keep doing this work. That's it. That's the whole pitch. There's no more to it than that. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. There is so much more to come in the weeks ahead. I know that uh, it's it's a very weird time right now uh, as things may pivot back to a lot of stuff going online. Uh, there's a lot of concern, a lot of fear. Um, I'm right there with you. I'm I'm very concerned as to where the the evolution of the pandemic is going and what it's going to do to live events, what it's going to do to all of our lives again. Uh, you know, our our lead story this week was a story about a company that has managed to not just survive but thrive during the pandemic. But I know that's not true for everybody. It's a struggle. It's been a struggle for us here. We know that a lot of you are listening. It's a struggle for you. So, uh, you know, all along we've been preaching one thing, which is do what's right, not just for you, but for everybody. The safety precautions are there, uh, not just to keep you from getting sick, but to beat this thing and to let us get back to having control over our lives. All right, that's enough preaching for me for now. Obviously, we're in the the non-scripted portion of the show. 
I want to thank our sustaining backers. These are the folks who give a lot more than two or five dollars a month each month to keep us going. Uh, there at Patreon.com/slash No Prestinium, they are Ari Hurston, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul Fernell, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all so much. I'm. I'm still in utter awe that uh, that you're still with me after all these years. And uh, yeah, I, I could not do this without all of you. So thank you. Also want to give a big thanks out to the team. Uh, thanks to Laura Hess for uh, coming on to the show. Thanks to Kevin and Patrick for doing the pick of the week this week. Uh, if you want to hear more from that particular set of human beings and myself, go back one click in the feed, you'll find the review crew episode where we also give our impressions. I believe uh, Catherine mentioned that about uh, the Galaxy's Edge uh, pricing announcements this week. Uh, spoiler alert, kind of kind of hit our expectation zone. Uh, we did not get sticker shock, but we do talk about the people who do uh, did get sticker shock. Um, I spoil my own work. Why do I do that? I don't know. The associate producer for this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the executive editor here at No Pro. And the No Pro podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced... (laughs) and mixed hosted badly i'm stumbling through my own writing by yours truly noah nelson you can find everything we do at noprosinium.com and its sister site everythingimmersive.com search for no proscenium on your social media platform of choice and you will find us there it is the nightmare from which none of us get to escape all right That's it. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.